You're a force in my life. You are a force in many people's lives, which we'll get to. I want to kick things off today. First, give a little bit of background on you and the amazing work that you do. But I really want to dive in with a very scary question, which is what is addiction and how do we define it? I am the founder of Recovery Management Agency, which is a consulting company that works with individuals and their families that are either suffering from addiction, mental health issues, trauma, or chronic pain. And I got started in that about 25 years ago. I came out here, I was an attorney for about a year in New York. I had no money. I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I started working. I got a job working in the entertainment business. And I was an assistant at a talent agency and just really fell in love with Hollywood and felt like I could really do that job of an agent, especially with my legal background. But I was going to have to go on this journey and try to make it. I had something traumatic happen to me and that took off my addiction to drugs. I had already been a pretty heavy drinker and cut to years later, I was still working in Hollywood. I was now a young agent and eventually got sober in 2002. After I got sober, I started becoming a little more successful in that career And my sort of definition at the time of success was all the outside things. Did I have the right title? Did I have the right office? Was I representing the right movie star? Did I drive the right car? Did I live in the right town? All of those sort of things that for me were my definition of success. I became a complete workaholic and I put down the drugs and alcohol and I put all my attention into fixing other people building other people's lives and careers, finding their voices. And I really took a back seat to who I was. And so many years later, five or six years later, I woke up one morning on my sober fifth year birthday and thought, I don't really feel happy. I don't really feel joy. And I don't really feel connected. And something's missing. And so I had this choice, either I was going to go back to drugs and alcohol, because that essentially was the quick fix to always feel better in the moment, although never long lasting, or I was going to go on a deeper self-discovery. And so I chose the latter, started doing a lot of self-exploration and meeting a lot of people and saying yes and showing up to things that normally wouldn't have done through that journey of sort of self-discovery I decided that I was going to retire from the entertainment business. That was newsworthy for a minute in Hollywood. People just started calling with, do you know this? Do you know that? Do you know who to call? Do you know what to do? And then over the last 10 years, I just built this recovery management agency with the blueprint of how I sort of ran the talent department at one time. One of the things we talk about a lot here is how a blueprint that you use in your professional life can often be used in your personal life. And how in a lot of ways, processes or even strategies that work can be applied to other areas of our life. And so what was the blueprint that you took from the entertainment industry and brought it into recovery management? So when I ran the talent department, I represented a specific niche of actors. I represented comedy movie stars and specifically male comedy. That's what I was good at. That was my area. And that was where I had my success. 
But it didn't mean that as a company or as a talent department, we shouldn't represent all the other kinds of different amazing actors, theater actors, television actors, the ones that are really comfortable doing an accent and putting on a costume and and doing all of that. So it wasn't my area, but it was important to have all different types of people working in the department so that they could be married with the right talent. So I knew that for me, I was good with a certain type of client. I knew that I wasn't necessarily good with other types of clients or specific families or things that were maybe triggering to me that I wasn't hadn't yet yet healed from. So this idea that I was going to bring other people on to match them up with the appropriate client that we were going to manage their health and wellness instead of managing people's careers. I was now going to manage their health and wellness. And we slowly started to add other departments that created less stress for our clients. I never wanted to be clinical or have any doctors or clinicians that should all be outsourced to exactly what that person needs, which is unique for them. But we did want to be able to manage, like I said, health and wellness and recovery and create resilience. And so we wanted to have all these different departments that enabled people to seamlessly move through their healing process. I just remembered one time, actually a pretty defining experience that I had with you that I don't know if it was as defining for you, but it was for me. You and I spent a day together a couple of years ago and we were in a car and I remember talking about recovery management and you and I recognized that your business and my business are actually very similar. What we do and the work that we do for brands and helping brands to build and to grow and to develop it's personalized, it's individualized, it's a service business, and that there's so many similarities in the way that we work. In the work that you do, obviously, as part of working through recovery and addiction, you deal with mental health. And one of the things that is very prominent in entrepreneurship, in the world of startups, is a lack of knowledge, education, and understanding of how to deal with mental health for yourself and your employees. What is the first step for uncovering and figuring out a path for where someone needs to grow or or learn? There's a lot of companies that focus on wellness, but I think that historically what they focused on is the physical health and wellness or the nutritional aspect, or they'll offer some yoga classes and things like that. And they haven't yet gotten comfortable with the behavioral and the mental health aspects. I think we're doing a lot better, but they're not quite comfortable with the conversations. And it's sort of been over here in, oh, H&R can deal with it. And it's not a topic that we discuss across the board. But I think that's changing. And I think that it also stems from the top. So if the leaders are not conscious and focused on their own mental health and their own well-being, it's going to make it hard for them to connect and create that safe space in the workplace where people can be honest and authentic and real and not have that stigma of being afraid. But I think we have a ways to go. You and I have a long relationship and our relationship stems from your work and the work that you've done with 
people that are very near and dear to my heart. And over the course of the last few years, when they think you outside of the work that you do focus on recovery and addiction, the thinking and how you think and the mindfulness and thoughtfulness that you take to your work has taught me so much. I remember a couple of years ago when I was on a journey to understand more about the world of addiction, I read Russell Brand's book. And in the very beginning of the book, he says, everyone is an addict. Whether you are addicted to your phone, to chocolate, to buying things, we all have some sort of level of addiction. And it was the first time that it dawned on me that the practices, the frameworks, the therapy, the work that can be really used in recovery can actually be used in general. And who better than experts in recovery and addiction management to talk about these topics? So when we think about someone that's suffering from the disease of addiction has a brain disease, the way their brain is operating ceases to work properly. And so once they have put that substance, whatever that is, into their body, they are stuck in the limbic part of their brain and they're no longer able to make a rational choice about stopping or going off memories of this didn't work out good for me last time or negative consequences. And it's why people that are suffering from addiction often right the next day are incredibly remorseful. There's an enormous amount of shame and those around them are thinking, why on earth would they do that? It doesn't matter who you are or how much you know or what color you are or what background you come from. Everybody gets affected the same and their brain no longer works properly. So that's essentially the disease of addiction for those that have it is progressive and chronic. That being said, we as human beings like to feel better. We are not comfortable being uncomfortable. We want instant gratification. This is what we've gotten used to, especially now. And our brains are hardwired to seek pleasure from something that felt rewarding. And oftentimes, we're looking for something outside of ourselves to make us feel better. Hence, I'm going to just scroll through Instagram. I'm going to just go eat some chocolate. I'm going to mindlessly go through the internet. I mean, any of the things that we do, they're just all different ways to not really be present in our hearts and souls. And it's why I started writing this book that I'm writing called Sobriety, because it was this level of what you're saying. The sober community has a design for living, let's call it that, based on a spiritual program. And what does everybody else have? And why aren't we talking about trauma and why it drives us to all of these different things? So essentially, I think that it's about becoming more present in yourself, maybe looking at some of those wounds, looking at what our stories have to say, where there might have been ruptures. I'm not saying don't work. I work a ton too. And you have found, I think, meaning and purpose in what you do. But there are times when all of a sudden that changes, life changes, our circumstances changes, we grow. And all of a sudden we wake up and go, not so meaningful anymore. Maybe I need to do something else. And we're 
caught or stuck in, oh my God, what do I do now? When really we have those answers all along, like we don't really design our lives. We need to discover them. And that is the purpose of sobriety. I think this idea of designing your life is one that first and foremost, I don't think that that's a common idea. And I also want to say not to minimize the disease that is addiction. Absolutely. And again, you and I, our relationship has been built on my relationship with people who are suffering from addiction and my history in that world, which at some point, all I said to myself was, I have to see the silver lining. I have to take from this what I can and what can serve me. And I also want to make an impact by talking about it. And I remember being with you the day I decided that I wanted to do something in the world of sobriety and addiction, I was with you. And it ended up again, leading me down to working with Monument, which was an early stage startup at the time that has now raised a, you know, a series A and they're off to the races. But I think that I, in a lot of ways have grown to be very grateful for my experience because it's given me certain tools and ways of looking at things or even understanding things within myself that I don't think in business today is pretty common or really even in personal life. In order for us to lead ourselves effectively, do you think that as leaders, we have to understand, uncover, or work on the things that may have created trauma and that are impacting our behavior today? I think that it is important to have an education about yourself as it is to have an education about the things outside of yourself. I too, I'm in this field of medicine and addiction and mental health. I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly taking a neuroscience class. I'm constantly taking a pharmacology class. I'm constantly, right? It's endless what I can learn. I can get really focused on doing that and I forget to do my own work. And then something happens and I'm forced to sit still because it's like, oh my God, this just happened and it was traumatic. And we've had those phone calls where it's like, okay, I don't even know what to do right now. And it's very easy to go right back into, okay, this is the hamster on the wheel and I know how to do this. And it's harder to sit still and connect back to soul and sit in the dark nights. But that is where the wisdom comes from. And that essentially is how we grow down. And that is necessary in order for us to be able to have real connection, I think, at a soul level, at an authentic level with others, including the people that work with us. Sitting still is super hard. It's really hard for me. Because it's constantly at odds with the idea of momentum and progress. It feels unproductive. And maybe that level of, or that feeling of unproductivity comes from a place of fear of the stillness, but it's very challenging. And I also think from a society perspective, it's go, go, go and do, do, do and be, be, be and let me accomplish this and let me look like this and let me buy this. And, and there is this constant pressure I think, to move when in reality, actually the thing that is really hard for me is to sit still. Mm -hmm. I totally relate to that. And I still feel that way. And I will sometimes say to my team, I feel so lazy. I didn't really do anything today. And they're like, what? You are the least laziest person. And we are constantly 
running. There's constantly crises, even though I feel that way, because I do. I'll be just sitting there with an hour and I'm like, I'm, I should be doing something. I should be learning something. I should be reading a book. I should be talking to somebody. I should be da, 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 da. You and me both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it doesn't go away, but I can notice it and just pause and take some time to sort of sink into that. Because if we don't take those times, what essentially ends up happening is something else will interfere and make us sit down. You'll break your foot, your back will go out. There'll be something that happens, a breakup, whatever. Something will force you to be still. And so that has been my experience. And I also started to realize the benefits of when I slow down and I'm not in that state I'm more effective and more people are drawn to wanting my help and I can be a calmer person. I can be the light in the room. I don't have to be the loudest anymore. I don't have to be like, look at me, look at me, look at me. I can just simply be and I can do more effective healing in that way for others as well. We talked on a recent Fahrenheit podcast about this North Star Someone said, my North Star or my purpose is to be in service of others. And I think that first and foremost, the work that you actually do is in service of others at Recovery Management and Sobriety, the book that you're writing. It's interesting to think about that the way that sometimes we serve others is by stepping back and by taking a pause when the natural inclination is to lean in or in my case, to run in. How do you help people sit still? If you're someone who's struggling with that sitting still, which ultimately will unlock better clarity, better leadership, I mean, in my case, probably sleep, where do you begin? I think really the simplest thing is put down the electronics, just put them down, not for long. I mean, it took everything I had to put my phone across the room to do this so that I could stay focused. I always say like, there's nothing that just taking a walk kind of can't fix. So there's times when we're all overwhelmed or we don't know what to do next. And I used to be like, I don't know what to do. So I need to like lean into that and keep doing more and more and more. And then I realized like, if I don't know what to do, it's because either that other person doesn't want my help or I'm not connected to actually what needs to happen. And so I'll just simply like pause and go walk the dog or walk outside or go in another room or listen to a song, just anything to get me out of that train that I'm driving full speed ahead. So it's not like I'm asking you to pause and meditate and like get super zen in the middle of the day, but just simply like put your phone down and take a breather. I know you could do that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it comes with, it it requires discipline. Discipline and practice. It requires discipline and practice. One of the things I've talked about and really, I think, uncovered over the last two years is my radical dedication to not having discipline in these areas. I say that I want to change my behavior. And I think for context, I know and I am aware of the fact that, first of all, the level at which I work the way in which I work. One, it is not sustainable. Two, it is probably not the most productive because I understand that if I was more clear, if I had more space, 
that I would be able to actually show up better and ultimately more effectively, but I don't do it. I say I want to do it. And to your point, I have those moments. We all have those moments. You know, it's like when you come back from the new year and you have a resolution or you wake up one morning and decide Mm -hmm. today's the day I'm going to start. And I don't want to say, but I fail. It's more that I just lose interest. Something else becomes more important. The good feeling I get by being overproductive becomes more important. And what I recognize is I'm actually radically dedicated to not doing it. This week was an interesting one at Fahrenheit. Everybody's going away and going out post-vaccine. There's an energy in the air. And what always happens at Fahrenheit in weeks of this nature is like all hell breaks loose. There's so much work. Everybody's overwhelmed. Everybody is stressed. So yesterday in our team meeting, instead of doing the team meeting, we actually put on very calming music and had everybody spend 15 minutes writing, handwriting their to-do list. I only did that because I was accountable to my team. If I hadn't felt like as a leader, I was accountable to taking care of my team and being in service of others, I probably wouldn't have taken the 15 minutes to create the space and create the air and sit down and actually write that. We are radically dedicated often to the things we're trying to walk away from. That's where I have discipline. I have discipline in not sleeping, in working 20 hour days, but obviously I want to create that shift. And the first point is to create awareness. So now I have the awareness. So now what do I do with it? If you think about something you need to change in your life and you think about how long it took you or if ever you made that change, people don't like to change. It's just not in our DNA. It's not comfortable. We're creatures of habit, even if that habit is bad. So it's find another doorway in. So I think that while maybe you're not ready to give yourself that discipline, what I hear you saying is nothing's more important to you than making sure that your team, those are all the questions you're asking me. How do I, as a leader, how do I, da, 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 I want to bring this to the team. It doesn't matter why you did it. It doesn't matter that they were your reason why you're still doing it. This has become a priority for you. You can't ignore the health and wellness and the mental health of your team. And if that's your doorway into your reason why, then so be it. Stop giving yourself such a hard time. Just be a part of the team that does it. And so you don't feel like you're doing it on your own, but there's purpose behind why you're doing it. The purpose behind why you're doing it is an interesting way to think about it. Because what you're saying is it doesn't really matter why. It just matters what is going to make you do it or help you to create the action. I studied depth psychology, which is a belief in the unconscious and that it's important to look at what lies beneath the surface. And it's more of a philosophy than it is empirical scientific data because you can't, how can you put statistics around someone's unconscious and soul? So it's essentially more of a soul psychology in essence. And so it's the lens in which I look at things through. So when I'm talking about addiction or depression or anxiety or workaholism, I'm looking at the why, what lies beneath that, that is creating that thing that's happening. It's not about the symptom. It's about the why. What I meant for you is it's not about how you get to the sitting still. It doesn't matter what doorway you walk through. If it's about you alone in a room, or if you make it about your team and that's your doorway and your entree into it. And that might be for you 
creating things for your team to do. That's your way in. But I also think it's imperative for you to take some time and not just necessarily on your own, but that's where other people can come in and look at the, well, why? Because that's the part that you need to be curious about. It's funny because what I'm thinking here is like, we ask ourselves why in everything we do business. Why am I writing this book? Why am I building the brand this way? Why am I here? And really, what am I trying to accomplish as a business? But finding the why for ourselves is actually quite difficult. And often some people don't want to do it. And there are probably some people who are going to listen to this podcast and say, this isn't for me. I don't actually want to go that deep or uncover that much to impact my business. For me, I found that it's a non-negotiable. I can't separate who I am and how I show up. It just bleeds. And I think why I'm interested in, in dissecting how this can help as a leader is because everyone that works for me is motivated by something. And everyone that works for me or that we work with has the places they're afraid and the places they're not, the things that challenge them where they're successful. And a lot of that at the end of the day is not just technical. It's rooted in really who they are and why they're here. So how does someone begin to look at the why? So if you're suffering from depression or anxiety or workaholism, part of it, what we've talked about earlier on this episode, is that it feels good, that we as humans are drawn to the things that feel good to us. But why does that thing feel good? Like, why is sitting at my computer for 14 hours a day comforting? And it is. And I think what triggered for me is when I'm in a traumatic moment or I've had a rough day or I've had a something bad happen, the first thing I do is sit down at my computer because that's where I am comfortable. That's where I have support from my team. I can feel successful in the work I accomplish. It feels good to get things done and be hyperproductive. So where does someone begin in asking themselves why? With doing this kind of work, you know, when you're talking about doing deeper soul work, essentially we talk about spirituality, which is more of looking at something outside of ourselves, looking at a higher power, a greater purpose. It's the way that we conjure up faith. We know that the universe is, is around. That's how people sort of look outside of themselves for something bigger. But this idea of growing down, of caring for your soul, of really connecting to this essence, this old wisdom that you have inside, that is where our passion, meaning, purpose, creativity lives. Now, how I found mine was through storytelling. The minute I started looking back and telling the story of my life, I noticed all these different areas where there were ruptures, where there were amazing things that happened and where there were these descents. And so I was able to see how things started to color one another. So for me, it's about when I was working in Hollywood, I had an amazing job. I was really happy. I loved what I was doing for a long time. But then I started to become unhappy and I didn't know why. And I think to pretend that that doesn't exist for so many people and all of a sudden you wake up in a marriage or you wake up in a relationship or you wake up at a job and you're like, what's missing? What's missing is you. So no, people aren't going to change unless they have to. But if you're one of those people who's waking up or had a year of isolation 
and had a minute to sit still because we all had that, whether we wanted to or not, then it is worth a little bit of like, let me look at this. What's going on over here? Let me look at why. Let me uncover this. It's interesting because your story reminds me a lot of my own in the sense that I had everything I wanted at, at a certain point in my late 20s. Everything that I could have dreamed, if you will, on paper mm-hmm. in terms of the partner, the job, looking at success through that external materialistic lens, I wasn't happy. And at some point, what used to serve me no longer served me. And I think that's honestly where I'm at right now in being vulnerable and talking about this workaholicness. Mm-hmm is like, I'm so grateful for it. It got me here. Exactly. The passion, the dedication, the energy, in a lot of cases, the preference, like the preference of working over doing other things got me to where I am today. But my needs are changing. And I think that that served me really well. And I will leave it with love. But part of what we're talking about is actually the art of letting go, which is very relevant to anything in business. There might be a function, a team member, a tactic, a strategy that served you really, really well in your business that just is no longer serving you anymore. How do you let go of it and leave it with love, but also know when it's time to create change? I always sort of go back to nature and to the seasons. When you're talking about doing this deep level of work, you can't necessarily put words on it. That's why you speak in in story. That's why metaphors are so great. That's why we look to other things, whether it's a song or poetry or something that feeds us, that we have a visceral reaction to. Like the seasons will change no matter what. Even if you live in LA, because we have like four seasons in one day, the seasons will change. You know that you are also going to, that right on the other side, something else will be coming, something else will be happening. This idea that we're growing downward into ourselves, like roots of a tree, and we're getting nourishment and we're getting nourishment. But regardless of that, what's happening on the exterior, right, is the leaves are going to fall. They're going to bloom again, but they're going to fall. This is what is going to happen. And so when you can kind of connect to that, it doesn't necessarily feel so scary. I know for me, when I I went through something really traumatic, and we've talked about that, and I was on the East Coast when it happened, and I just was frozen. I couldn't move. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't really work. I couldn't eat. I just didn't know how to move forward. I was scared. And it really brought up some old PTSD I had. And so every morning I would get up and I would open the sheets and I was living on a pond at the time and it was the dead of winter. And so the pond was frozen and I would open the sheets and the pond would be frozen and really desolate, no animals, no birds. And I would go, yep, still frozen. But I had this deep knowing, even though I didn't know when I was going to feel better, and that was really scary, this deep knowing that that pond would start to melt, that the fish would come back, that the swans would come back, that the leaves would change. And I just held on to that of like, well, that must be how it's going to happen to me. 
And that was really effective for me because I wanted to fix it. I wanted a time frame. I said to myself, you can go through this for a year, I said to myself. That didn't work out. And it takes what it takes, right? (laughs) It takes what it takes. I think focusing sometimes on something outside of ourselves can really help with that. I want to talk a little bit about trauma because I think trauma is a word that is often misunderstood because there are so many forms of it. And often we imagine trauma to be connected to a traumatic incident, but trauma is not binary. It can come in a myriad of different ways and it can impact you personally in a way that is different than others. So I would love to understand and hear your definition of trauma and how it might impact the way that we react to certain things and moments in our life. Everyone experiences stress. Trauma is something different. It's unique to the person that's experiencing it. We all have a different perspective. We all have a different genetic makeup. We all had a different childhood. We all had different attachments to caregivers growing up. And all of these things will influence how we're going to experience the world. So basically, there's different kinds of trauma. There's the acute trauma, which we often think of as the car accident, the assault, the death, all of those things. Those are acute traumas. There one time something happened that took us out of our window of tolerance. But there's also chronic trauma, being in an unhealthy relationship, being in an unhealthy work environment, being in an abusive emotionally relationship, household, a parent, anything. These chronic moments, being bullied at school, all of these things couple on top of each other. And they're small little things that cause chronic trauma. And then there's the complex trauma, which is sort of a myriad of everything and just on such a deeper level. But essentially, when we have something that's traumatic, what happens is we're getting information in a particular experience through all our five senses. And that information is usually we process it really quickly and we decide, our brains decide, are we safe? Are we loved? Are we okay? And if it's common information that we're always getting, if it's something that's familiar to us, we're like, okay, good. This is, we're safe. We're okay. But if it's too much information too quickly, that doesn't make sense. And we are experiencing a rise in cortisol, which shuts down our memories. And we're given, and we're experiencing the adrenaline rush, which essentially activates our amygdala. Then all of a sudden we're in the back part of our brain and we're in that fight, flight, or freeze mode. And we're elevated outside of our window of tolerance. And our brains become encoded with that experience and our bodies hold on to what that felt like. So let's say something happened in the workplace. God knows, you know, I was in Hollywood for 20 years. So there were things that I didn't even realize. And let's say on a scale of one to 10, it was an eight. And I sort of moved on from it, never thought about it again. But then someone down the road said one thing that sort of pushed that button that would have maybe been a two on the scale of one to 10, but it also felt like an eight because I hadn't resolved that last eight. 
So trauma is not necessarily about the event that happened. It is about how we are experiencing those events in the present time. And so, yeah, we're all having, I mean, there's no one that has gotten through this past year that hasn't experienced the trauma of feeling isolated, being away from their family, what it was like to change their work habits, what it was like to be home with your family, what it was like to not be with your family. Everyone has experienced some form of trauma. And so what I have seen in my business is just this complete uptick with the amount of suffering and deep, deep suffering that people are having, whether it's depression or anxiety or some sort of an addiction or just kicking up any sort of mental illness diagnosis that they might have had prior. Because that underlying trauma, which everyone is experiencing, is so big and so vast and we haven't had time to heal from it. So I think that learning what trauma means and looking back and seeing where some of the ruptures might have been for you is really essential to being able to not just connect with yourself, but being able to connect with others. One of the things I love about the way you talk about mental health or work is that it's very academic, first and foremost, because of course you are incredibly well studied and you are a student of your craft. And I think that you look at things in a way or explain things in a way often that is very binary, right? It's taking a lot of these ideas that are very heady or complicated and actually saying there are steps. And in fact, in a lot of them, I work with you, you've been like, Farron, you're going too far. There's like a step one. Most of the time, your first step to me is take a deep breath, calm down and do nothing, you know? (laughs) But like, you're right, which is we are coming into a new time as leaders, as individuals, coming out of this year, a year where globally we experience something together, there's a shared experience around the world that will impact us in ways we know now. And then to your point, ways we don't know, and we might find out later. What do you think is the responsibility of a leader, of an entrepreneur, of an individual who's working with others and caring for each other as we go into this new era? Like the first thing that came to my mind while you were talking was, you're right. And and how do I support my team? What I did was, and I obviously have a little bit more information and knowledge, but I forget to sometimes apply it to myself or my team, even though it's there. My team and I went and we, we tried to do this intervention and it was not successful. And we walked away and I think we all intuitively knew that something very bad was going to happen, that that was going to end really badly. And that was really, really heavy on all of us. There was just a lot of tension. There was a lot of bickering. There was a lot of just energy around it. And we were still all together. And so I said, we need, we need a trauma session. So we just got on the phone with a somatic therapist that I'd been working with. And I said, can you do a Zoom session with all of us? And he was like, yes. And we had a Zoom session and he talked and we cried and we felt the feelings. And that was the only way, you know, trauma is a nervous system problem. So we need to be regulated. We need to feel that and let it go. And so I think that it's important as a team that you take those moments, that you bring in some professionals to maybe talk about what trauma really is. There's different modalities when you're talking about doing trauma work, whether it's top down. So whether you're working on 
really laying down new neural pathways or you're working on how it affects the body, which would be more bottom up. But there's different modalities and talk therapy doesn't really work when it comes to trauma. And so I think it is about bringing in some people that are professionals that can do a little retreat or work with an hour or make those things available, find out what those resources are and make them available to your team. Being a leader today is actually a really tall order. I think historically the job of a leader was to run a great ship. It was very tactical and it was about the work product and it was about the to-do lists and the timelines and the deliverables. I think for me, the calling that I feel is that as a leader, my job is to support my team members and my clients, quite frankly, as much emotionally as I do technically and to help unlock their potential, to help unlock their ability. And I don't know how you get around doing that if you don't allow this space to come into the workplace. Agreed. But I also think you should take some pressure off yourself because it's not about just what you can bring them. And I I was listening to something that you were, maybe it was a podcast that you were doing where you were saying how much you learn and how much you get from them. And so they're going to show up in ways that are going to teach you something inevitably, right? And so it's not just all on you. There's a community that you've created that you will be feeding off of each other. And someone will show up and it'll show you a blind spot that maybe you had and it will give you that intuitive idea to go and do X, Y, and Z. But it's not just going to be that you have to take care of all the people. When I can sort of step back and let my team come to the table and I can notice it in them, like your girls know what they're doing. Oh, yeah, for sure. And what we're talking about here, certainly as it relates to a business, is culture. Because culture is created by a community of individuals. Culture is not created just by one person. And yes, I think it is my responsibility to set a tone. And I think part of the dialogue today and wanting to dive into the world of addiction, how that impacts us, how trauma impacts our behavior in and outside of the workplace is because I know that for me to lead effectively, for me to set a tone, I have work to do, right? Which is really like the whole journey of Fahrenheit and it's never ending. If there is a commitment to growth, there's not a pinnacle I'm trying to reach. It's how do I constantly think about being better, faster, stronger, smarter in ways that I have desire to do. But I really love the idea of thinking about culture as more of a community effort and that it doesn't have to just come from the leader, that it's actually about potentially creating the space, the platform, taking the step back to what we talked about, shutting my own mouth and letting others do that for myself too and and for each other. Yeah, I think you could take the pressure off. It will happen organically if there's space to breathe. Yeah, it's funny. That has been the theme of this week. I feel like I say this now on almost every podcast, but We go into these conversations and these topics and so often what comes back is the basics. Giving yourself space, taking a moment to breathe, writing a to-do list, really critically thinking about something and just the power of those simple acts, which can unlock so much. Um, 
Thank you so much for this conversation today. Oh, thank you. This was awesome. 